egregious violations of the code of conduct are fine. This week, I'm going to say whatever I want about anything I want, as is my free speech right. And I will defend you for it and speak for you while you hide from consequences. Hi, I'm Mike Nickel. I'm Jonathan Dennis. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 97. Uh, No, I am not Mike Nickel. Uh, There is no slander. We are simply doing parody, which is a legally protected form of speech, as is all other aspects of free speech. And there's no such thing as consequences anyway. So whatever, I'm Mike Nickel. I'm Mike Nickel. (laughs) You are this week. Uh, Hey, Troy, have we had any mail recently? We have had some mail. We apologize to people who sent messages into our uh, voicelink.fm mailbox because uh, we didn't read it because because nobody nobody sent any at first and we kind of forgot about it but then we thought we should check this thing lo and behold we've got a message and we'll play that for you now hi troy hi mac this is rannick in seattle a few months ago someone named heidi called to ask about the status of some treats that she was expecting from troy i've been waiting in suspense but i feel by now i must have missed something was there an update on this on the show Do I need to be watching feeds other than this podcast to keep up with the happenings in the expanded Speaking Municipally universe? If Heidi received her reciprocal treats, was she satisfied with them? If possible, I'd like to hear a description of the tastes and smells for the benefit of your audio-only fans. Thanks, and keep up the great show. Thanks for the message, Rannick in Seattle, and... No thank you for keeping me honest again, as all our (laughs) listeners seem to do. But there's a couple key points I want to address in your comments. First, there is a wider Speaking Municipally universe, and you can find that mostly on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Troy Pavlik. Mac is at MasterMac. His Twitter is a little bit more boring than mine. It is. That is where you can catch up with all of the hijinks. Like, for example, when Heidi tweeted the treats that she received. There's a lot of different textures, tastes, smells, and even sounds involved. My gift to her was one of everything. So if you went on Twitter, you might have seen there's a macaroni and cheese box, banana bread, bread with scallions and cheese, chocolate chip cookies, mints, gummies, raisins. There's some fried green onion cakes. Everything that could be there is there. And I think that's important to recognize that I have paid my due. I have paid the penance. To the other listeners that I know that are listening that I haven't yet paid my penance to, whoops. (laughs) Don't hold your breath. On to the rapid fire. A back-to-school busing kerfuffle is leaving some kids at the curb. As kidlets of all ages started returning to school, buses were up to 90 minutes late in Edmonton, with the board suggesting parents just drive kids to school to alleviate demand. The busing companies have experienced significant losses in the labor market recently, due partly to the COVID-19 pandemic, causing many of their mostly retired workforces to stay home, but primarily due to the late-night, no-rules, pink-slip school bus drag racing circuit that finds its home on River Valley Road every Tuesday night. The school board has said that their contractors will be increasing their training budgets to find new recruits and are also looking into deploying spike strips at 3 a.m. when local legend Miss Frizzle deploys her nitrous oxide power magic school bus that has gone undefeated for the last 13 championship circuits ever since the unfortunate retirement of Don Big Yellow Iveson to run for public office. 
the school board is recommending parents download an app that allows them to more precisely determine the wait times for their child's bus each morning, and that bus drivers uninstall photo radar reporting app Waze because, quote, we need the cash cow to make them thirsty for the sweet milk of twice a day shuttling of a bunch of coroned up rugrats. A South Edmonton Walmart has been closed indefinitely after an infectious outbreak forced a dozen staff into isolation. While precautions have been taken in this trying time, repeated interactions, especially in close quarters, can lead from a single source into an outbreak in the blink of an eye. Said the general manager of the store, quote, It was just one customer coming in with sweatpants and a pajama top. We thought we could contain it. But before we knew it, we had people foregoing showers, eating from dumpsters, and generally just making the whole place feel like a hotel for squalor. But we're Walmart. We take them as they come, but when a department manager came in Tuesday morning playing country music, we had to call it there. Even we have standards. We're going to make enemies today. (laughs) Gateway Boulevard, north of White, was closed for a day and 83 Ave for 10 times as many this week for installation of streetcar tracks on the way to a new stop on 82nd Ave. The Radial Railway Society, the volunteer-driven organization that operates the historic streetcar, were jubilant that the streetcar will reach the main street, though disappointed that it won't operate this year. When we caught up with a spokesperson who had a free moment, he was waiting for a Serb check at the time, asking what the new extension will look like, he said, quote, If I tell you it's a Hyperloop, will someone finally give us funding? Speaking Municipally is a part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This week, we're going to tell you about the Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. The podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation itself helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the story of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can check out wherever you get your podcasts or or subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. There is a piece of news this week that despite our best intentions to avoid talking about him, we have to talk about this week. The, uh, what is it, witch trial of Mike Nickel came up this week? The greatest witch hunt in the history of politics or something like that. Yeah. Uh, sanction hearing was held on Wednesday afternoon for Councillor Mike Nickel. So we mentioned previously that a number of citizens had complained about social media posts that he had made back in the spring. The integrity commissioner had reviewed these and determined that he had violated some sections of the code of conduct and recommended that council hold a sanction hearing to determine what to do about it. So there was lots of options on the table. Uh, They could have issued a letter of reprimand. They could have probably kicked him off some of the committees he's on. You know, they could have done whatever they wanted to. Can you guess what they did? I would speculate as normal that I would say absolutely nothing. Yeah, I don't think it's entirely fair to say that they did absolutely nothing, though. It was a bit of a surprising way that we got to this, and I'll let you kind of explain that a little bit more because you listened to it. But ultimately, we had an 8-4 vote in favor of sanctions, with uh, Zadok, Katerina, Cartmel, and Banga voting against sanctions. An 8-4 vote would normally be carried, but it wasn't this time. Yeah, it's a quirk of their bylaw that establishes the code of conduct and the sanction hearing, which basically establishes a very high bar, which is a two-thirds majority, which I'm okay with, you know, a two-thirds majority, it's the same thing you need to impeach a president. Sure, 
that's a fine threshold to have for something as significant as sanctions. I don't know if my math is off, but 8 out of 12 seems like 66% to me. Normally, you just have to have a majority or a supermajority of those present and voting. This is you have to have two thirds of 13. The full council. Yeah. Okay. Regardless of who isn't there. And in a sanction hearing, one person will always not be there. So the fact that Mike Nichols' vote was required on his own sanctions, that seems like an oversight in the bylaw process, in my opinion. Technically, he could have stayed, right, if he wanted to? Yes, and he could have voted against his own sanctions, as I assume he would have, right. but that would have been his job. So Mike Nichols did speak, though, right, at the meeting? No. It was a really interesting sort of farcical scenario where council was having their questions of administration, or in this case, Jamie Pytel, the uh, commissioner who had found Mike guilty of contravening the code of conduct. It was about 30 minutes before they would typically take their afternoon break. And Councillor Knack, the ever helpful, suggested, hey, let's just take our break 30 minutes early. That way, what comes next can be uninterrupted, which seemed like a good plan. Yeah. While they were in the process of approving the vote to recess early, Mike Nickel walks into the room and Mike Nickel says, no, I don't want to recess. I want to do this now. To which council's like, weird, but <laughs> sure, whatever. <laughs> okay. They rescinded their motion and they allowed Mike Nickel to take the floor and uh, give his rebuttal, which he did not. He spoke through his lawyer, the perpetual conservative lawyer, and that was who we introduced at the top of the show, Jonathan Dennis, former attorney general and solicitor general and conservative all-around defender guy. Yeah, and he said pretty much what you'd expect him to say, right? Yeah, um, it didn't sound very legally. Like, at one point, he concluded just with, Regardless of the outcome today, Mike Nickel will not apologize and there is no legal mechanism to force him to do so. And then both he and Mike walked out of the room. Just Mike drop, got up and left. Mike nickel drop. <laughs> it was actually probably more poignant in the room because listening to the live stream and watching the video, you just saw Iveson's confused face and after a couple seconds saying, I take it you won't be asking or answering questions then? Um, and at that point, uh, interim city manager Adam Laughlin jumped in and said, Mr. Mayor, procedure-wise, there's no way to force them to stay to answer questions. Um, council may or may not make a decision that the fact that they didn't stay to answer questions can be held against them in some way, shape, or form. That could be part of the reasoning process. He was basically saying, you're not like Congress in the United States. You can't issue a subpoena mm. to Mike Nickel to force him to answer questions, but if, as part of your sanction hearing, you want to use the fact that he didn't answer questions as evidence, that's totally within your rights. And counsel presumably didn't take the bait on that and just got on with the discussion. As most of them were wont to do. You had Aaron Paquette jump up first. No one is being silenced. That's a ridiculous proposition. And normally I wouldn't be so passionate about this, except that I'm going to be very frank. I come from a people who actually have been silenced. I come from a family that has put their, members of my family who have put their lives on the line to fight for our freedoms and for our democracy, and to typify this as an attack on democracy when really it's just about being 
as honest as possible to the public. It's not a difficult concept. Yeah, I listened to that part of the meeting after uh, after the fact, so I replayed the whole thing, got to hear all the reactions, and Councillor Paquette was very impassioned in his remark. He was lit. He was hot. And uh, I really appreciated that he said what he said, because I think it needed to be said. And it was good that he went first for that reason. Was less good with the counselor that followed up Paquette, because right after Paquette, he made these reasoned, impassioned points. Then counselor McKean got up. Oh, this just blew my mind. So yes, he was second. But you know, after you listen to the whole uh, group of counselors speak, they all took care to call him Councillor Nickel most of the time. Scott McKean took the mic and said, Mike's Mike. He's a character. And he is, uh, this is within his character to be controversial. And politics is a bit of a rough and tumble game. And, and, and later in his remarks, he said, I have tremendous um, empathy for, for Mike Nickel. We've had a lot of chance over the years to sit down and talk with each other. And he's been quite open with me a number of times. And I really, I have a soft spot for Mike Nickel. I have a soft spot for Mike Nickel. Like McKean was actively trying to make him seem like buddy-buddy with Mike Nickel. It was very strange. Even if we take Scott McKean at his words and assume that he was genuine about his uh, projections there, that he did have some empathy for Mike Nickel and a soft spot for him and oh, politics is just rough and tumble. Why do you say that? Yeah. And Scott McKean isn't just some like bumbling old guy. He's a former journalist. He understands how this works and how this plays in the media. Why is he saying that? Which he reminded us during his remarks. He, he talked about needing to make a correction back when he was a journalist. He likes to invoke his time as uh, a columnist at the journal. And, and he, he basically said we wouldn't have been here if Councillor Nickel had just corrected the information that he posted on social media that was incorrect, factually incorrect. So he kind of used his experience as a as a journalist to say this is the only reason we're here. But other than that, I love Mike Nickel is basically what he said. It was the most phenomenally baffling take and didn't convince anyone in the room of anything other than what is wrong with McKean. And this the sequence of McKean not really understanding what to say in a given moment, it's continued on from last week. Uh, last week, you'll recall the police tank issue. In the past, McKean has sat on the police commission. He was on the police commission when this tank would have got approved. So when the journalist asked him about it, he said, I honestly don't recall the meeting. And, you know, if I did recall the meeting, I wouldn't have questioned the chief. He's the expert. It's him abdicating his responsibility for oversight. Yeah. And this at the sanction hearing is just, again, he's like, Mike is Mike. Boys will be boys. When has that phrase ever meant anything insidious? The tone deafness of the entire situation, especially coming off Paquette's impassioned and well-reasoned speech, baffling. Yeah, totally. A number of the other counselors shared uh, Paquette's position that they just didn't think we should be doing this. Katarina among them. Councillor Henderson said something similar. Most of the other folks were kind of like, I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be here. But since we are here, let me tell you what I think. Broadly, as we know, eight of them had this rough opinion. 
actions should have consequences. There's a code of conduct. If we don't uphold the code of conduct, what was the point? And that's how we got to eight votes. It really shouldn't have been that complicated. I think you and I last week or when we spoke about this last, we were like, you know, this is a bit of a difficult situation because if you do sanction him, you basically give him what he wants. But the only right decision here is to enforce the code of conduct that was unanimously approved by council. And I thought it was really interesting when Mayor Iveson spoke, he, he referenced that approval a couple of years ago. So there is an irony that we unanimously agreed to this code just two years ago. And there's also an irony that the code's bylaw was in fact moved by Councillor Nickel and seconded by Councillor Knack. And Iveson had a lot of really good jabs in this meeting. I thought it was specifically interesting when he was asking questions of Jamie Patel, he had pointedly said, roughly paraphrasing, just to confirm, a councillor saying your office was anything other than politically neutral would be slander and in itself a violation of the code, correct? To which the integrity commissioners replied, yes, absolutely. Noting that that is exactly what Mike Nickel has done over the past couple of weeks. I think... Not to belabor the point very much, we know what happened. Uh, Council tried to send a letter to Mike Nickel, at which point Mike Nickel could have just shredded it. But instead, the four votes toppled the situation and no letter was sent. I think one really interesting dissenting voice in this case was Councillor Cartmel, who, in a very typical Councillor Cartmel way, said a lot of really correct sounding things and then drew the wrong conclusion from it. The really salient point he brought up was when we passed this code of conduct, what was fresh in our mind was, and go figure, it was Mike Nickel berating administration in public council meetings to the point where administration was feeling unsafe at meetings. Administration didn't want to go and speak to council because council was bullying them. And that code of conduct put an end to that. But when most of the councillors, Cartmel says, were voting on this, they had that fresh in their mind, the bullying of administration, not tweeting out memes on social media, which I think is fair. It is fair to have a different interpretation of that. However, the code of conduct isn't ambiguous. And that's why the integrity commissioner proposed, let's make a social media policy or don't. Which is something the council will consider at another time. I'm not, I'm not sure it is fair, actually. I think that's a really bad take from Cartmel. Even if you had something fresh in your mind, you're voting in a policy, you're voting on bylaws. These things are not temporary, lest they're explicitly temporary like our mask bylaw. You've got to be thinking a bit bigger picture than the recency bias effect, right? You've got to be considering... What are the implications of voting on this thing? That's that's your job as a counselor to make an informed decision. So if if he's basically saying that he'll make a decision based on whatever the most recent interaction was, I guess we can figure out where he's going to vote on all the other important issues going forward. The other thing that kind of draw my attention about Carmel, he blogged about this and he basically said that it shouldn't be council that determines whether something is appropriate. He, he basically said it should be the voters. And that's a, that's a thing that you'll hear often, right? That there's a referendum on your behavior, on their decisions, on their strategy and their leadership every four years. But I actually agree with Iveson a lot on this, where he basically said, the public should have a way to hold us accountable at all times, 
not just once every four years. And that's one of the tools that council made available to us as citizens to hold them accountable. It should be noted, those who advocate for a referendum every four years are generally the same people who want voters to forget what has happened in years one through three. The people who want to be held accountable 100% of the time generally have the best intentions to act appropriately 100% of the time. But if you're only accountable every four years, voters' memories are short, and I think you can play off that. Definitely. At the end of the day, Mike Nickel is now free. He celebrated this victory, and he used those words in his tweet, by basically blasting out every single meme and offensive tweet in a thread that he was investigated for. So he was found to have violated the code of conduct. That is unambiguous. Everyone's on the same page about that. He just wasn't punished for it. And he decided to celebrate by violating the code of conduct some more. Well, and he's totally right. He won. The only winner in this situation is Mike Nickel because he got exactly what he wanted. On that happy note, let's just move on. Um, Let's talk about actual policy development. Go figure. Policy is still happening in the city of Edmonton. And this week, Station Point, that's a place we haven't heard come up in quite a while. You'll remember Station Point is that development up by Fort Road, that hellscape by the Costco. (laughs) Um, Station Point has had a rezoning proposed and then approved. Yeah, 12 to 1, only uh, Councillor Zadok voted no to this. The big idea here is that we've not seen the development in the area that we long thought uh, we would have. And so the rezoning takes it from, you know, allowing high-rise buildings to making it possible for developers to build mid- and low-rise buildings with ground-level commercial, that kind of thing. Councillor Paquette for Ward 4 basically said, uh, quote, it wants to be growing and thriving. The ward does to bring businesses local and to appeal to families. He said the new zoning would attract more young families to put down roots there and create more accessible local business options. So that all sounds really good. And I suppose it doesn't hurt to try a new approach, given that the previous one has failed to work for many years now. But I read Ashley Salvador's tweet, and I basically just said, yeah, what she said. Ashley's tweet was, quote, Station Point fronts onto a six-lane road with loud, fast-moving traffic. It's unpleasant for anyone not in a car. Until this fundamental issue is addressed, it will struggle to become an urban village. And she's right. Um, I think in the opening to this segment, what did I describe it as? A hellscape. She's right. I do also think, though, putting Fort Road aside, this rezoning is better. It was zoned from high rise to mid to low rise, which is exactly what we're talking about needing, the missing middle. I do think this is probably a better zoning overall for development in the area. But to Ashley's point, she's right. The zoning can only change so much unless you address what the zone fronts onto, which is this horrible chasm of cars, I don't know that anyone's actually going to want to live there. Yeah, it's not pleasant, as she said. It's also pretty unsafe to be having to cross traffic lanes like that. It's very uninviting as a pedestrian, as anyone not in a car. Um, This is the kind of thing that, in theory, the new city plan should help us address by more tightly integrating that transportation corridor with the types of development around it. But for now, you know, you're right. It's a better zoning, but it doesn't solve this really fundamental problem. The thing that we all have to remember is 
We talk in terms of city planning and city development of spending two, four, eight billion dollars on LRT across the province in order to spur this development around the LRT to get this transit oriented development and build a better city. Fort Road and the Station Point development is at an LRT station. That's why they call it Station Point. Right. We have the opportunity for TOD with an LRT already built. The expensive part is already done. We just need to not even construct a road, deconstruct a road. Just put some pylons in there and shorten it up a little bit. There's not a lot of money that necessarily needs to go into this project to make it accessible. It's more about the bravery and political will. However, there is a project in the city that just does need some more money, and that's the Coronation Rec Center. Right, so council got a number of updates this week, some financial ones about capital projects. This is one of the ones that is behind schedule. Uh, This one got a separate report because council received uh, two scenarios. So the first scenario is basically what was previously approved, um, and then scenario two adds a bunch of things including another $46 million to build this thing. So scenario two would build everything that was previously uh, approved, plus 750 spectator seats, an indoor running track, some indoor uh, larger gymnasiums and additional space, a direct connection to the Peter Hemingway Leisure Center there, outdoor tennis courts, some better traffic access. Like, it sounds good. The thing in the report that caught my eye, the sort of rationale for why we would want these things is that it would make the Coronation Rec Center, the first indoor triathlon center in North America to support year-round indoor triathlon training and events. And the argument there, I suppose, is that we'd be able to host these major international events year-round, a thing that other places can't do. And I guess that would justify an additional $46 million? Is, is that going to give us that kind of return? Well, if the bubble can give us $20 million. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, the the other thing about scenario two is that it would delay the opening of the facility another couple of years, so it pushes it out to 2026, whereas um, if we go with scenario one, it could happen quite a bit sooner. Council didn't decide on anything this week. They're going to get uh, some budget options for the fall budget adjustment, and that is where they'll ultimately make the decision about whether or not they're going to spend this money. And I think the answer will be no, right? Uh, I don't see them spending $46 million to make an indoor triathlon space that nowhere else in North America has. I agree with you. I don't think they will. Part of me feels like it would be nice to spend some money on a rec center that isn't literally on the edge of the city like a lot of the others. I know there's Commonwealth Rec Center, don't get too mad at me, but you know the Meadows and these other ones, Lewis Farms, they're really far out there. This Coronation one is fairly central. Um, so that would be a reason to maybe support it. It would support you know some of the goals that we have around the city plan and making sure that we don't have to continue to sprawl. Um, but I think you're right. At the end of the day, it's a pretty hard sell. Yeah, and even then, I always complain about these Rec Center mega projects, Because if I, as a citizen, am going to this community amenity, which we absolutely do need and especially do need more centrally, I'm not going there to do an international triathlon. Right. I'm going there to go for a swim, maybe go for a run, maybe play some racquetball, those sorts of things, small scale things. Building Olympic sized pools, that's great and it serves a very niche community. But in the same way that golf courses serve a very niche community, I don't know that that needs to be the 
target and the bar we aspire for with all our facilities, which with all of them that we're building does seem to be the target we're aspiring for. Yeah, I agree with you. One of the targets we have been aspiring for for time immemorial is to end homelessness in Edmonton. And we've talked about this before, how COVID-19 seems to make the impossible possible. We're able to throw up emergency bike lanes overnight. We're able to stop shaking people's hands. There's so many things that previously thought impossible suddenly become possible with a global pandemic in the background. And hopefully for Iveson, ending homelessness is one of those things. This is super interesting. He, about 10 days ago or a week ago or whatever, uh, came out in the media and said, you know, we want a 10-week plan to end homelessness in Edmonton. He's calling for leadership and action, immediate action from the federal government. You know, he's talked before about how the city itself is ready to go, ready to build things, ready to make it happen, and they just need the support from the two orders of government that have all the money. Uh, so that's not new. He's been kind of beating that drum for a, a long time. But but this week, council decided that they would also write a letter to the federal and provincial governments with a new idea. They say that real estate has dropped in price because of the pandemic, and that pre- presents an opportunity for the city to maybe buy some hotels that are not going to survive, perhaps, or that are doing very poorly, and use those to help address the affordable housing gap, which is, I think, a really interesting idea. And I think it solves one of the key problems that we have with the plan to end homelessness, which is always, we have this housing first model that we know works, that we know saves money. It involves building supportive housing units. So even if you have the money from the province and the feds to do that, there's still like a couple years lead time. You have to find a contract, you have to find a site, you have to do community consultation, rezoning if necessary. There's a process to be involved. Yeah. This is really phenomenally interesting because it is literally write us a check we move in tomorrow. That's how easy it could be. And that's really tantalizing. Rather than invest $50 million now and see results a decade down the line, it's invest money now and let's get these people off the streets before winter. And I think that's a really strong pitch that's going to be harder to ignore. And again, the COVID-19 of it all spending money doesn't seem so scary anymore. And I think that's part of what has emboldened Iveson right here is we have the province running the biggest deficit in history, perhaps because of their own mismanagement, but that's not what this podcast is about. If governments can do that across Canada and across the world, maybe cities can take a little bit of bold action right now and we'll all figure it out together later. And I think that's what Iveson's banking on. And I don't know, I'm a little bit excited about it. Me too. I think it's a great idea. And I really hope this works. They did this recently, actually, with the Coliseum Inn, right? Um, they used that for some bridge housing. This is a continuation of that same line of thinking and I think could be very, very successful. And it's, as you pointed out, with winter approaching, really important that we do something sooner rather than later. Some of the estimates put the number of homeless uh, people in Edmonton experiencing homelessness, you know, increasing hundreds, you know, from 1,500 to 2,000 because of the pandemic. So there's definitely a need that we need to address. Imagine the good news story this winter of it is minus 35 and we didn't need to open up Central Station for people to sleep in because everyone has a place to sleep. That's a good news story that resonates across the world. Totally. I had mentioned just moments ago about governments ramping up and having deficits in the billions that 
they're the highest they've ever seen. And we take our time on this show to really give city administration the what for. When they deserve a calling out, and even sometimes when they don't, we do that call out. And I think it's only fair that when they do something good, we give them a little bit of kudos. And the city of Edmonton projected a $23.8 million shortfall by the end of the year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that number seemed really small to me. Yeah, me too. This is really interesting. So if you look at what's happened over the course of the year, you know, we had our budget set last uh, Christmas, essentially. Council and administration kind of knew what they were running toward. And then the pandemic hit and it became very, very uncertain. And so they had to make all kinds of estimates. We've talked before on the show about the ranges that they put forward, you know, everything from 40 million to like $250 million, like huge swings. Um, they did bring some things to council in the spring. They made some budget adjustments, about $142 million in adjustments. So this update that we got this week was based on all of those changes and our projections. How are we doing against this revised budget? And $23.8 million is like 1% of the overall budget. It's a really small amount. And so what that suggests to me is that administration has actually been pretty accurate with their projections. And that's impressive considering the pandemic is an incredible time of uncertainty. There's so much dependent on what the province decides to do and what might happen uh, with the spread of, of coronavirus and of COVID-19. So it's really interesting to me that we're not further off than we thought we would be. It is also interesting to me that um, we raised taxes. The other orders of government didn't really do that. I mean, provincially, the province raised taxes by forcing user fees and things up, but they didn't actually raise income tax or anything. They cut corporate taxes, right? Exactly. The federal government gave tax breaks as well. The city of Edmonton said, we would like more revenue tools, but this is the only revenue tool we have and we're going to use it and seems to be doing pretty okay. Go figure what sort of commentary that might have on taxation. We, we're doing okay in terms of our adjusted COVID-19 budget. I, of course, we don't want to diminish the fact that they had to make some hard decisions a number of months ago, and they did lay off a number of people uh, working at the city in order to achieve uh, just a 1% projected variance at the end of the year. So it's not like it was an easy thing for them to do, um, but it's good that they've been able to manage the crisis as well as they have and that we're not so much further off than we, than we could have been. And that fine accounting at the city of Edmonton was probably helped by a chartered professional accountant. And they're all across the province. And CPAs, they're more than just number crunchers who love Excel spreadsheets. They're business leaders, finance experts, trusted advisors, and entrepreneurs, even city bureaucrats. They work in many different industries from film to fashion and government to oil and gas. Long story short, CPAs didn't just break the mold, they made their own. And they can help spark your next big idea, pivot during difficult times, start your new business off on the right foot, and so much more. For an inside look at how Alberta CPAs are supporting their clients through the pandemic, follow CPA Alberta on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Ooh, that's a rough ad copy to read. Uh, our listeners are not going to go to LinkedIn. Sorry, CPAs. You can also visit cpaalberta.com to find out more. Our listeners might do that. That's all for this week. I won't see you next week, will I? I am away next week, so you're running the show not quite solo, but without me next week. 
the listeners, they tune in for me anyway, don't they, Matt? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it'll be basically a normal show for our regular listeners. We will all miss you, Mac, and we will see you in a couple weeks. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.